Hello, everyone, and welcome to McGill Cares webcast series supporting family and informal caregivers. I'm Claire Webster, a former caregiver, certified dementia care consultant, and founder of McGill University's Dementia Education Program. I work with a dynamic team of leading healthcare professionals to oversee the program who include Dr. José Moret from the Division of Geriatric Medicine and Dr. Serge Gauthier, Professor Emeritus, formerly of the McGill University Research Center for Studies in Aging. McGill Cares is supported by the Amelia Saputo Community Outreach for Dementia Care. The McGill Dementia Education Program offers a comprehensive range of free resources to educate and support persons living with dementia, family and informal caregivers, healthcare professionals, medical students, and the public at large. One of our most important resources is the Dementia Companion Guide, which can be downloaded for free and is available in over 10 different languages. Printed copies are available on Amazon at a cost of $20 and proceeds go to support our program. So I really encourage people to pick up a copy and visit our website at mcgill.ca slash dementia for so many different resources to support you. So today we have a very important topic, which is called planning for a transition of care. And for the third time on McGill Cares, I am so pleased to welcome my friend and colleague, Matt Del Vecchio. He is a certified professional consultant on aging and the owner of Liana Senior Transition Support, which provides families with guidance and support in navigating home care, senior living communities. And he also does a whole division that does psychosocial assessments as in homologation of mandates or tutorships. Matt is also the co-host of a popular weekly radio show, Life Unrehearsed, on CJAD 800 AM in Montreal, and writes for the Suburban newspaper as their seniors and aging columnists. There quite likely will come a time when one needs to consider a transition from home into a senior living community. And its decision is a decision that is always filled with emotion, guilt, and anxiety. So Matt is here today to provide some assistance with this issue and to hopefully avoid people going into crisis mode by outlining some steps that can be taken to allow for a smoother and less stressful transition. Welcome to McGill Cares, Matt. Thanks for having me, Claire. So this is probably the third time that we're gonna be talking about this subject and it really never gets old because it's one that families have to face on a on a, on a regular basis and a very difficult one. Um, so let's begin by maybe if you could please explain like what would be some of the warning signs that it may be time to uh, you know, explore alternate, alternative living arrangements. I mean, not only maybe transition to a residence, but you know, maybe it's time to get some support at home. Um, what would be the warning signs with regards to persons living with cognitive impairment or other frailties? And then we'll also, if you could answer about you know, what are the warning signs that the primary care partner can no longer really manage on their own? Right. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned, um, you know, there's two types of warning signs, one for the actual person living with impairments and, and uh, also for the care partner. So let's start with the individual, your loved one, for example. I always like to break it down into physical warning signs and cognitive warning signs. So for example, on the physical side of things, 
Um, what about ADLs? We call them ADLs, activities of daily living. So some examples of that, has mobility become an issue? Are stairs becoming more difficult to navigate? Is there a risk there? Um, how about transfers? Are, are you able to transfer out of bed, transfer for toileting? Um, there's warning signs there. Assistance with dressing or undressing, is that becoming an issue? Bathing uh, is also important. Is there a risk of going in and out of a bathtub or a shower? What about cooking and meal prep? So these are all warning signs that will usually creep up on you, but you should keep, keep a look at. Now on the cognitive side of things, uh, uh, examples, has there been a, a diagnosis of dementia or related disease like Alzheimer's? Is there a, a flight risk? Is the person at risk of wandering? And you know, have there been some we we'll call them trigger events for getting appointments or for getting to pay bills. Was there an issue with an oven that was left on that shouldn't have been? That's a real concern for families. Uh, go in the fridge. Is there spoiled food in the fridge or even food where it's not supposed to be? Something that should be frozen that's in the, in the closet or a cupboard uh, or vice versa. And also uh, warning signs would be inappropriate behaviors. You know, is there perhaps more aggression? Um, these are all warning signs for the individual. Now, switching gears a little bit, Claire, to warning signs for the care partner, you know, it is, as you know, more than most, it is a very tough job. And usually you're thrown into this role with very little training. So it can be physically and mentally exhausting. And so we see a lot of warning signs such as burnout, just overwhelmed, just not having enough support in place that can end up leading to some real things we see, difficult things, substance abuse, relationship issues with family members or marital problems. These are all warning signs that you need to be to be made aware of. And sometimes, you know, when you're in the fire, if you will, you're not even realizing these warning signs. Sometimes it takes an outsider to bring that to your attention. So I want to go back to, um, you know, certain signs of aggression, because I've experienced that recently with it with a couple of families that I've worked with, for example, you know, uh, you know, for a spouse that normal, I mean, prior to having any cognitive issues would have never become aggressive or violent towards, you know, the, the husband, the wife, and all of a sudden, you know, the, the spouse starts to grab them and, and shake them. Um, or, or, you know, when we talk about flight risks, you know, another example would be a husband or wife sleeping by the living room, sleeping in the living room because they're so afraid that their spouse is going to leave the house constantly, right? And I think that the, the, the topic of aggression is something that people don't want to admit, right? They, they think, oh, maybe this was a one-time incident. And I see often, and I'm sure you see the same thing, but they don't even tell their, their grown-up kids that this has occurred until a crisis happens where, you know, they've become physically injured themselves. Yeah. And uh, aggression, it is, is not uh, going to happen all the time, but clearly, as you know, it happens very often, um, you know, verbal aggression, verbal abuse, very common. Once it gets to that physical stage and it could simply be by just grabbing wrists, grabbing arms, um, you know, there's reasons for it. And that's one of the issues with aggression. What's causing this? Uh, can it be, um, perhaps alleviate it with 
a change in medication, or is it truly an issue that is above and beyond medication? So um, I've had situations, Claire, just like you've mentioned, where there's embarrassment, there's denial, you don't want to tell anybody about it. And, uh, you know, I had a situation just two weeks ago where the gentleman was hospitalized, but unfortunately he hit his wife and broke her nose and she had to go to the hospital as well. And so now it all came out, you know, and, and it was mm-hmm. devastating for the family. So, you know, it, it's it's very, very tough to deal with those situations. Again, these are warning signs that, okay, maybe we need to change things around. So once we assess, and, and that's the type of work that you and I do, that you know a person, it is time for whether we are, we're going to add some home care support or it's time to transition. The topic of guilt comes up all the time, right? It's, I am never going to place my husband, my wife, or I swore to my parents I would never place them. And if I were to place them, they told me that they would be remove me from their will and all of that stuff, right? And then, and then there's the guilt of, you know, once the person is placed, a spouse feels that they need to visit seven days a week, six days, six hours a day. So how do we deal with that topic of guilt? <laughs> One of the toughest issues um, that families have to deal with uh, is guilt. Um, and I, I want to start with, like, there are different types of guilt, right? Uh, so, for example, there's the guilt that you put on yourself. You know, if you're a daughter or a son or an adult child or if you're the spouse, there's kind of this duty, this obligation that, hey, this is family. I need to take care of my loved one. So there's this tremendous guilt there. And then reciprocally, there's guilt put on you from your loved one. Um, that could even be just what you were talking about, Claire, past conversations, even a couple of years ago, maybe five, 10 years ago. We hear it all the time. You're watching something on the news and you turn to your spouse. I never want to go into a residence. Just, you know, give me a pill or put a pillow over my face. You, you hear all that. And the, and the reaction is usually, don't worry, I would never do that to you. Mm-hmm. Fast forward several years later and you are in the fire now and the guilt is even greater. So it's, it's difficult. It's really difficult. It's emotional. And so what I always suggest, and there's no cookie cutter answer here, but try to break it down into different parts which will help you determine if it's the right thing to do a transition. So for example, there's four things I like to focus on in breaking it down. First of all, safety and security. Is your loved one living alone, for example, or are you living with that loved one? Is that person we talked about flight risks and wandering, is is that becoming more uh, prevalent, especially in the winter months, uh, in in our Canadian winters? Uh, Were there issues, uh, trigger events with an oven left on, uh, bathing and hygiene as the risks of falls. So safety and security needs to really be looked at. The second thing I look at is proper care. Are the proper care measures being put in place? In other words, if you are the care partner, do you have the proper ability to care for your loved one with cognitive impairments or frailties? The odds are you weren't trained for this role. Most caregivers across Canada were not trained. They're thrown into it and they're winging it. But now when we start getting it, and again, I break this up into physical and and cognitive as well. Physically transferring. If you're a wife in your 70s or 80 years old and and you're trying to transfer your husband that's heavier than you, that is taking a toll. Maybe you don't know how to transfer properly or it's just simply too heavy. Now you have physical issues for yourself, such as back problems. 
Um, you know, there's risks of falls, bathing. Are you able to provide the proper bathing and hygiene? We're dealing with incontinence now. So those are some of the physical care issues that you need to be concerned about. <clears throat> Again, breaking things down in terms of all this guilt you're feeling on the cognitive side. Do you truly understand how to treat someone with a disease like Alzheimer's? Um, you know, do you have the ability to distract and redirect? Um, can you handle, do you have the patience for the repetitive questions or plans not going as scheduled? We just talked about abuse, both verbal and physical. So do you have the ability to provide that proper care? Second item. Third item, do you have the support mechanisms in place? We talked about, we see this a lot uh, these okay. days, burnout, overwhelming. Uh, are you just physically and mentally exhausted? Is your family being infected? Is your is marital issues happening? So is the system in place? If not, do you have the ability to put systems in place for yourself? And the fourth one is financial. Can you afford it to stay at home? If you can, okay. Some people are even quitting their jobs to take care of a loved one. But in dealing with guilt, and if you're able to break it down into these four sectors, safety and security, proper care, support mechanisms in place, and financial, it helps you justify that decision to move from more of an emotional decision to a rational decision. And I've had some family members saying that have actually made a transition, and they were actually pleasantly surprised that it wasn't as bad as it was. You know, we hear all these things on the news, and, and really, they felt a bit of relief. It's just being able to make that move, which is where the guilt really kicks in. I think another very important part, which I explain to people often, is the, the term anosognosia, right? So dementia causes another illness, which is called anosognosia, otherwise known as a loss of insight. So the person who has the illness, they don't recognize that there's anything wrong with them, right? Like they, they, they will absolutely refuse to have home care support, absolutely refuse to go see the doctor, refuse. And I often say to families, you know, it, it comes down to tough love because your role, as you mentioned earlier, as a family is to provide, ensure their safety, number one, best quality of care, that they're clean, that they're happy. But if you try to argue with them, it's not going to work. Because it's like you're you're speaking to dementia, right? You're not speaking to the person. And it truly causes a loss of insight. So even more as a family member, you have that responsibility to, to enforce some of these difficult decisions, meaning that we need to have a companion at home or they need to transition in order to ensure their safety, that they are well taken care of. Because you, you can't try to convince them at times. It becomes impossible. So it really comes down to tough love. And, and I think that's really hard for families to, to, to deal with. But it's, but it's important to know that anosognosia is a real problem with dementia. Right. And it's not your fault. This is just, it's an yeah. issue. It's, it's real. And, and sometimes you personally take things, uh, to, you're blaming yourself when in fact it really is the disease speaking most of the time. So I can imagine um, that this type of decision must cause a lot of family conflict at times, right? So not everybody's always on board with moving mom or dad or, or you know, or moving the, the, the spouse. So any any suggestions on how to manage like family conflicts? Like how do you keep those communication lines going? 
Yeah, uh, very common issue. I've yet to see everyone on the same page within an entire family. So you're absolutely right, Claire. Communication is key. I like to call them essential family conversations. And these conversations should actually be done at the very beginning when you're starting to see some red flags, not when you're in full-blown crisis mode. So it's always important to establish roles. Okay, so if you are the primary care partner, what are you willing to do? And more importantly, what are you willing not to do? And I'll give you some examples. We've had situations where a care partner saying, listen, I could only do 20, maybe 30 hours of week. That's all I can give to care for my loved one. Once we go beyond my comfort level, then we need to be able to put other measures in place, like more home care support, other families coming in to, uh, to help um, caregiving. We've got other situations in terms of establishing roles. Are you prepared to quit your job if you're working? Some have done it. Some are saying, I, I can't quit my job. Come on, it's not realistic. So that's one of those discussions. If it gets to a point where you're almost having to quit your job, you're communicating that that's not what you're willing to do. Other examples of Who's going to take care of appointments and bill payments and meal preps? Who's going to give me a respite day? I always talk about out-of-town adult children as well. And it's difficult, but try to avoid what I call the hit-and-run scenario. You know, you're the primary care partner, a sibling, a brother, a sister comes in from out-of-town where they live, and they come in and they fix all the rules and, and, and uh, how things are being done, and they're on a plane back to where they are. Hit and run. That is not fair for the care partner. And so you need to express that as well. I had a lady uh, just two weeks in a discussion just like this. And she says, Matt, my deal breaker is incontinence. As soon as I have to start changing fecal incontinence and diapers, I'm sorry, I can't do that. That is my deal breaker. She's expressed that to her family. If that happens, we need to move on. We need to look for a potential transition or we need to bring in help at home. And, you know, a big one is, listen, my family is breaking down. My marriage is breaking down. If ever it gets to that point, I'm sorry, we need to do something. So communication is key. Earlier, the better. So, you know, everybody needs a sense of purpose, right? Regardless of the type of illness that you have. And I think the, the thought process is I want to stay home. I want to stay home. But in terms of remaining socially stimulated and engaged, I mean, what would you, would you, would you think that a person would be more socially stimulated in a residence versus living at home? Like what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. And, and I want to be clear that this is not a discussion in trying to transition a loved one into mm -hmm. a residence. Okay. There are some real benefits of home care support, but there are some real benefits of, you know, a more appropriate senior living community. And when you're discussing the topic of, you know, socially and recreationally stimulated, the short answer is yes, without a, debt, a doubt, this an appropriate senior living community is better than staying at home. Even if you have 24-7 care at home, you're still not going to get that same stimulation in an appropriate senior living community. That being said, Every situation is unique. A residence is not for everyone. It's difficult. So I understand that. Um, I'll give you an example. If you are bedridden, for example, and you probably set up pro properly set up at home and you have caregivers in place, well, you know, you could argue that it's better to stay at home in those situations. But overall speaking, 
There is more stimulation um, in an, in a senior living community, and um, you know it's there is no cure, as you know, uh, Claire. You've had uh, many many experts, Dr. Serge Gautier and others. There's still no cure for dementia. So what you can try to do is at least can you delay the decline because inevitably there will be a decline and so one of the answers to that is more stimulation so if you can provide more stimulation it will ultimately help in that decline of cognitive impairment so a lot of questions that i get or the question that i get often is you know cost right because it's it's unfortunately the more the disease progresses the more care that's required and there's always a cost associated with that so what would be the difference in terms of you know hiring around the hiring around the clock full-time care which probably would mean three people right um versus transition transitioning a person into a private residence or a public residence yeah i get that question a lot and um if we truly look at cost, okay, we're just talking financial here. It is far more expensive to hire round the clock full-time care. I'm talking true 24 seven care. So let's play this out. 24 seven care, uh, let's say $20 an hour, that works out to about $15,000 a month. And that's if you could find multiple people to work seven days a week. You mentioned three people, very often it's four and five people for a true 24 seven scenario. And if you go the route of going through, instead of hiring directly, and you wanna go through home care agency, well now, you know, agencies are anywhere from 32 to $36 an hour. Your monthly price range is going from 22, 23, $24,000 a month for true 24 seven care. Now you will get some more government tax credits, all right? but even if you uh, pare it down to two by eight hour shifts, seven days a week, you're still going to be better off in a senior's residence. If you are in a situation where you only need several hours per day, seven days a week, and you have the support network, the family that can take care of your loved one, then if, from a financial perspective that we're talking here, then it makes more sense to stay at home. And I also think that what people need to realize is when you are caring for somebody at home, it, it requires a lot of human resources from the care partners, right? You've got to manage, make sure that whether whether you're using the public health care system or private, if that professional care partner doesn't show up, oh my gosh, what do I do? You were planning a trip, you were planning to go out for a few hours shopping and the care partner doesn't show up, what do you do, right? So there's a lot of managing on behalf of the family members. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've got many clients that actually go this route. You know, we're going to try it at home. We're going to give it a shot. That's mom's or dad's desire, my husband's wife's desire. But I usually get a call a few months later saying, look, it's not working out as well as I, as I thought it would. So where it has worked out is one, if you have the budget, we're talking big numbers here. And two, if you could handle the human resource aspect of it, bear in mind, you are now becoming an employer. An employee typically works 40 hours a week. Well, there's 168 hours in a week. So there's sick days that you got to be concerned about, vacation days, statutory holidays, benefits that need to be paid. So it is a lot of work for, for families. And I think that's why many families will choose to hire home care companies knowing that it's the responsibility 
of the home care company if something were to come up, someone's sick, a caregiver can't get in, not you know, not showing up. Now is the responsibility of the home care company to try to deal with it, and it's not your issue as an employer. So let's talk about you know now looking at best practices. So so supposing a family was to consider looking for the ideal senior living community, right? What's the difference between memory care and assisted living? Yeah. Okay. So a couple of things. Uh, I guess um, first I want to address you know what are you looking for in in an ideal seniors residence and and there's many factors, but I always like to recommend start with what type of care is required and not just today, but what you expect in terms of a year, two, three years from now. So that's very important. Is it physical care that's required? Cognitive care? Is it a combination of both? I like to ask what's the staff to resident ratio, which is important. Also ask that question, is the ratio different at day and night? Very often it is different. Is it the right culture and environment for your loved one? Things like language and religion. Is it more of an Anglophone, more of a Francophone environment? Is it in the right geography? Does it meet your budget? <laughs> a question that wasn't typically asked pre-pandemic that is very often asked now is what are the infection control and hygiene protocols within the residence? Very important now. And then what is included and not included in the rent? Starting with meals, for example. A lot of times meals are included, but if they're not, Okay, what are the costs for meals? Can I get one or two or three a day? By the way, speaking of meals, always ask, if you narrow it down to the top one or two, always ask for a complimentary lunch. They're going to do it. Um, it's a good way, not, not only just to test the food, but it's a good way to see your surroundings and the environment of where your loved one might, uh, might live. And then things like a la carte services, housekeeping, laundry, medication management, care services such as dressing and undressing, bathing are important. So that's some of the more important points for what to look for. And Claire, I wanna address the difference between memory care and assisted living. Very important topic because they are different. So I'll give you some examples. Assisted living, there are many residences that might have an assisted living floor or the entire building will be assisted living or semi-autonomous. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're great memory care specialists. They can do a very good job of ADLs, activities of daily living. You need some help with that dressing and undressing or bathing, medication management, accompaniment to, to dining rooms and activities. Very good assisted living floors out there. However, they may not necessarily be the best memory care. So we're seeing more and more residences, both in public and private, that are doing more memory care. And what I mean by that, staff that has been trained understands the disease. And, you know, we talk about some of the traits that they've been trained in. Do they have the ability to distract or redirect, not approaching individuals from behind, understanding that showers could be an issue, especially with getting water on the face, being patient and empathetic, good body language and keeping routines are so important. Um, is there a coded floor in the case that there's uh, wandering or flight risks? And is the environment the right environment? We're seeing more and more where it's just not institutionalized, exit doors being covered, you know, the Netherlands style uh, with wallpaper of images and trees and post offices. And so we're seeing more and more of that in memory care. So is there a certain type of 
level of patient or is it, it that they won't accept in the private residences like at a certain point if the, if a, if a patient is displaying you know behavioral challenges or like at some point will they say no i'm sorry but we can't take your loved one right so all residences will do their own evaluation usually by the director of care or a head nurse okay and it's at that point in time, because what everyone wants to avoid is a transition. And then two weeks later, well, we didn't know this or that, and your loved one needs to leave. Okay, so it's pretty structured. Where I've seen situations, there are some assisted living residences that could provide some care. Um, but they realize, okay, this is beyond our level of care. You know, it's too much. Um, memory care, you have a lot bigger and a lot better chance to get in however in the private sector where they draw the line usually with zero tolerance is on physical abuse not verbal abuse they're very used to verbal abuse but if there is a risk of one of their residents or one of their staff that is going to get physically abused most private residences will not accept and so what would be the difference between the public system and the private system? And then how do you how do you get into the public system? Yeah, so uh, I'll, I'll explain that in understanding that uh, public residences are strictly long term care. OK, so this usually means more than three hours of daily care. So there's no such thing as an assisted living or independent living in the public sector, okay? Public residences are long-term care. In order to get into a public residence, the only way to get in is through your local CLSC, where you're gonna request an evaluation, and this doesn't happen overnight. You really have to advocate to get that evaluation done. Once the evaluation is done, there will be a scoring system in place. Most of them use what they call an ISO-SMAF, a score of zero to 14. And once graded, you will either be accepted or not accepted into a public residence. And if you are accepted, what they're going to do is saying, here's a list of the public residences in your geographic region, select one, and then you will go on the waiting list. Some are now allowing two or three selections. It depends on your local CLSC. Now, um, the, then you go on the waiting list. One of the challenges or the gaps in our system is for couples. Very often I get asked where, well, no, we're not ready to be split up. I need my husband to go to a public residence, but I want to go with them. Unfortunately, that is very, very difficult to achieve. One, most of the rooms in CHSLDs are private studios or even shared. Um, so a couple can't live there. And two, and this, this is where we get into the evaluation aspects, very rarely are is the couple on the exact same care levels. And so I've had situations where the husband, for example, qualifies for a CHSLD in a public residence, but his spouse is far too strong. She may be frail and have mobility issues, but didn't qualify for um, uh, you know, a public residence. So this is why private residences are, are also popular because they offer the convenience, you know, of allowing you to select when and where on your times. Many times couples can go into a private residence uh, together as well. Um, but what I will say though, Claire, from a care perspective, I couldn't say that public or private is better. It really depends on the individual residence. There are some good ones, 
and there are some not so good ones, both in public and private. Okay, what it, but is it perfect? No, things are improving, and I'm going to give some examples later on of that. But compared to pre-pandemic, this was one of the silver linings of the pandemic. It really shined a light on senior living and residences, and it showed how extremely fragile and vulnerable it was. We all saw that. And so government measurement measures are, are being put in place and continue to be put in place to, to improve the health and well-being of our seniors and residences. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, it really comes down to the level of training that was provided to the, to the staff who are working in either the public sector or the private sector. And, and these staff, they deserve to be properly trained. And it really comes down to who's investing in their education and their training and the support that's being offered to them, because they need that in order to take the best care possible of, of the people that are depending on them. You know, you made a you made an important point about, you know, if you need to go into the public health care system, you have to start this process early. You know, the waiting list, I believe, unless it's changed, is two to three years to get into uh, a CHSL day, depending on your case. And, you know, it takes time if you call the CLSC for a social worker to come and do an assessment. And and I always talk tell families about the importance of being really proactive. And, and you know, you because you're, that's what becomes your role is you're advocating on behalf of your loved one. And you can't sit by the phone and expect the CLSC to call you back. You really need to follow up and follow through. And you can't wait until you're in crisis mode and say, okay, I'm ready to have my loved one go to now the public system. It doesn't work like that, right? Claire, so start so, early. It's so true. And you really do have to advocate that you know, a lot of the people that we talk to don't like the fact that, come on, why is our system broken like that? But you do have to advocate. I'll always say, just bear in mind, it's almost a sport and you're in competition because guaranteed your neighbors or the people in your geography, they're calling sometimes mm -hmm. daily. So, you know, you have to push and advocate. I know it's difficult to do, but unfortunately, squeaky wheel gets the grease. And we hear that all the time, but it, it's true, you know. And I can't blame the, the individual employees at CLSCs and our CSOs. They're good people by and large, but unfortunately, the system is not great. Um, I would argue that it's it's not getting better. It might be getting worse because of our aging population. So you've got to advocate, keep pushing, don't feel guilty, handle things with respect and, and be diplomatic, but you've got to push. So what's the, uh, the, the current state of the healthcare system in Quebec? Because I understand, I know we have viewers that watch us from other parts, but let's talk about now in Quebec, uh, what's the current state of the healthcare system with regards to whether it's private or public residences that are, are, are capable of, of properly caring for persons living with dementia? Yeah, so there, you know, in general, as mentioned before, um, things are improving. They've, the, the government has taken some initiatives to uh, put in place. If, if you've seen some of the new builds, unfortunately, the island of Montreal, if you're in Montreal, uh, not too many, but some of the newer ones that are going up are, are smaller, um, you know, 12 to a wing uh, maybe you know five six floors ninety to a hundred as opposed to the massive box type uh, institutional. So um, it is improving. So uh, that's one and private as well. You know there there are uh, nice private residences. Uh, you and I have been into a couple of them as well. So the care is 
is also improving. But do your homework. Don't be afraid to go uh, to ask these questions we talked about when looking for a senior community. Um, um, I'll, I'll give an example of, of one, Claire, that uh, I think I was talking to you about prior uh, in the public sector. I was over at Glenmount, in, in, which is a, a one in, in, um, in Cotonège. It's an RI, Resource Intermediaire, that was, uh, that's a level below CHSLD, still long-term care. And they have a care floor. I walked in, Claire, I, I was amazed. I mean, they had, um, you know, as if you were in Mont Tremblant, walking through the Tremblant, pictures of the mountains, some trees, a little bowling alley. You're uh, another area where you're walking through old Montreal and you're literally, I mean, the walls is, are, are all old Montreal. So, you know, this is the effect of around the world. And Netherlands is one of the leaders of that. So it was encouraging to see a public residence with uh, this level of care for memory care. Okay, so I want to go back now to the family and 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 what happens if a person is finally transitioned somewhere, whether that could be private or public, and they are not getting the level of care that they deserve, right? So we know that families go in and they visit and they say, okay, this is this is not good. You know, they're not clean, they're not safe. Like, how do families deal with that? Yeah, it's so it's one of the questions that we get, um, you know, if you're not happy with what's going on, I always recommend start right at the residence. You need to communicate your concerns with the individual residents. It can go up to the level of the director of care, the general manager. Um, it could be the owner. And you want to express, have a meeting. Express your concerns. You want to document your concerns in writing, and you want to be able to ask for an action plan. Put an action plan in place. Sometimes even residences have what they call residence committees, where you know you've got several residence committees where they're discussing any issues that are brought up. So in that area of communication, things are improving. The government is is really hunkering down on that. But you've got to be able to communicate your concerns, give them the ability to put an action plan in place. Now, after all said and done, and it's still an issue, you're still not getting your answers, things aren't improving. Know that every region, every CIUS has an ombudsperson, okay? It's called the Service Quality and Complaints Commissioner. This is both for public and private, okay? So, I've heard some people say, well, it's private, you know, I can't. No, no, no. The ombudsperson is responsible for all seniors, residences, public and private. So you can go to your local CEOs and your CLSC and ask for the how to complain about a situation that you've got. That's the next step. Now, even if you can't get answers going that route, and it could happen, know that the last measure is provincially there's a Quebec ombudsman. It's called the Health and Social Services Ombudsman. So you could look that up. There's 800 numbers, there's emails, there's a website. So within, and this is all within the government, the province of Quebec. So it can even reach to that level. I think that's one of the things since the pandemic that has improved where your voice can be heard. Is it going to, is it diff, is it easy? No. Will there be some issues? Yes. You do have to advocate, like we're saying, but there's a nice structure in place. If everything you're doing locally at your own residence is not um, working out, you can scale it up. 
So, you know, what, my second to last question, we're going to go back to, I guess, kind of like the guilt factor, right? So now you've transitioned your loved one, but you still feel that overwhelming responsibility to be there at all, all the time, right? So I get, you know, we get these questions sometimes from, 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 from husbands, wives that, you know, they want to go and they want to visit, but they decide, well, I need to be there every day. I've got to be there seven days a week. I, I should be there for six hours a day. At what point is it best to put in some boundaries and give yourself permission to have a life and to allow the staff who are hopefully trained to do their job? Claire, you're 100% correct. And I love the term you use, give yourself permission to take time for yourself. Now, easier said than done. You know, you've probably been in that role of caregiver for many years. And it is hard to let go. You know, certainly the first month or two are, are very challenging. But with time, allow yourself not necessarily to cut the cord, but loosen it a bit. Try not to be too hands-on or micromanage. You may actually be doing your loved one a disservice. You're not allowing the care team to do their job. So always bear that in mind. Try to find that sweet spot. And I call that sweet spot is when your role is caregiver, like you're right into it, you're caring. If you could move into the role of companionship, where you're spending better quality time with your loved one and doing less of the caregiver role, you know what? That's win-win. Your, your, your loved one is going to appreciate the staff a little more. The staff is certainly going to appreciate you. And it's going to be better for you. You will actually be able to go home a little more often than what you thought of. You're going to be able to sleep better and you'll have a little bit more peace of mind. So try not to completely let go, but uh, avoid that situation where you're micromanaging. Give yourself some time to yourself. Just, just so, so, so important. You know, for me, you know, to end is nothing, for me, nothing's more important than knowledge, right? Knowledge is power and not only for families to really understand this illness and the progression and evolution of the illness, but also to understand all of the resources out there that are available to them, right? And I feel like you always need to be one step ahead. And so, you know, people say, no, we're not there yet. I don't want to consider that. But I think that it's very important to do your research and understand in the event that something happens, you know, here, here's what's available to me. So would you have some recommendations regarding some trusted resources where people could go to, uh, to do research about certain residences or, you know, have even just more information about this topic? Yeah. And, and it's evolving as, as the population ages, there's starting to be more and more resources and you could start locally with your communities, uh, just locally, in my perspective, uh, I'm on the board of Nova West Island, a wonderful resource that has day centers and respite care and so on. So check out your local community. Um, wonderful organizations like AGI and, and the Alzheimer's Society. So tap into those resources that are there. The, there's a developing field of elder care planners, uh, Claire. So you know what? Not ready to move, but I need that navigation plan, that roadmap. So there are more and more elder care planners out there. The home care industry is becoming more popular because the CLSC is just not providing enough hours. And then if you are looking to actually transition into uh, a residence, there's plenty of resources. You know, my company, Lianis Senior Transition Support, is part of the Association des Conseillers d'Hébergement du Québec. 
the ACHQ. In fact, I'm on their board of directors. This is um, professionals across the province that will help guide and navigate the whole residence search process. They'll do needs assessments. They'll organize tours, narrow it down to the top three or four. Just in, you know, in Montreal alone, there's over 400. Across the country, there's mm. many, many options. So it becomes overwhelming. So in Quebec, we're very, very lucky with this type. It's pretty well the same. It's a free service. We're with you on tours. Why is it free? Because the revenue comes in the form of a referral fee from the residences, very similar to the real estate industry or travel industry. So tap into that. Look up ACHQ. Um, and there are many companies like Liana's that do exactly that to help you in your journey to try to find perhaps an appropriate senior living community. Matt, thank you so much for being with us today. And this just this, oh, it's always so great because the information that you provide is so invaluable. You're a true expert in your field. And um, you know, I'm so, so happy to have the opportunity to work with you. And you were one of our content experts on the future online education modules for family caregivers that we'll be launching uh, in 2024. So thank you so much for taking the time to be with us on Miguel Cares. Claire, thank you for having me and, and you're doing great work and, and uh, you know, wish you continued success. Uh -huh. This webcast is an initiative of the McGill University Dementia Education Program, which is funded by private donations. If you would like to make a contribution to our program or for more information, please visit us at mcgill.ca slash dementia. And if you would like to join our mailing list to be notified about upcoming episodes of McGill Cares, as well as other very important programs and services that we offer, please email us at dementia at mcgill.ca. Thank you for watching.